Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the Pulpnet, your link to the online world of the pulp magazines, since 1996, online at the This Pulp Event Podcast features author and screenwriter John Woolley and John Gunnison of Adventure House, who discuss the thrilling detectives. The talk was recorded on August 13, 2015, at Pulp Fest 2015 in Columbus, Ohio. Here is John Woolley. This is John Gunnison. I'm John Woolley. We're doing a presentation tonight on the thrilling group Detectives. You want to go ahead and point at that book. We seem to have a few copies left of uh, Thrilling Detective Heroes that you did back when. Oh, God, Back it was when 2000. the earth cooled, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like 2008, 2009 or something? Yeah. Yeah. We'll find here. 2006. Boy. Time flies. That's right. One of the things that we wanted to do, because we're talking about uh, Leo Margulies and also uh, Ned Pines, and I, when we, when we were asked to do this panel, I talked to John and I said, look, it seems to me the thrilling group, the thrilling group, you know, the, that did Thrilling Detective, Popular Detective, Gmail, all of those, was like PRC or Monogram, uh, if you know your Poverty Row Studios. And PRC and Monogram a lot of times would get the characters that had been big, right, at one point, Charlie Chan, started out with big studios, ended up at uh, Monogram, Michael Shane, Philo Vance, and uh, there, it was kind of got people on the way up and people on the way down as far as actors went. And John said, really, that wasn't what it was. And John used, since we're doing metaphors, John used a baseball metaphor. Would you explain that? Well, what I was trying to say is that baseball in the 50s and 60s, you had teams that were really first division. You had the Yankees, you had the Cardinals, you had the Dodgers. And you had those teams that had all the money, and then you had the Washington Senators, and you had the St. Louis Card or St. Louis Browns, and you had the Kansas City uh, Athletics, mm -hmm. uh, and you know y y there was a division between those teams, almost like a division between Street and Smith, which was definitely the top line publishing house. Then you had Popular, then you had Thrilling, and then you know you can put all the other titles in whatever uh, row that you want to, um, including, you know, if you want to throw in, obviously, Munsey and, and uh, Clayton and all those other publishers that really didn't make it very long uh, after uh, the Depression. Obviously, Munsey lasted longer than that, but you had companies like Clayton and, and Hersey that didn't make it out of the Depression very far. Well, the thrilling group liked to pick up as much good stuff as it could, as cheaply as it could. And uh, John, I think this is a good time. We were talking about the 10 cent pulps. Can you go into that just right. a little bit? Um, the magazines prior to, um, first of all, let's, let's look at this uh, from a viewpoint of, I know we have a tendency to romanticize the pulp magazines. You know, that it was all rosy. That's why we're that, here. Yeah, yeah. And, and the fact that it was a business. And these guys were there to make a profit. I can still remember at PulpCon's past where Harry Steger was saying, uh, well, you know, we canceled uh, Dr. Yen Sin because we found out that the, the, the words meant in Chinese the sex act. And I'm saying, oh. <laughs> okay, no, you canceled it because it wasn't making money. Right. 
All right, so all these, ma all these companies were there to make money. And when the, uh, before the stock market crash, you had magazines, 20, 25 cents. They were paying their authors good money, you know, as much as five cents a word or more. But then the stock market crash came and it all came to a crashing halt. Um, and I, it, I was struck with a comment that Harry Steger said many years ago to me, and we said it to the audience here at PulpCon. And he said that, you know, when he first put out his four magazines in 1930, October 1930, they were all 20 cent magazines and he wasn't making any money. He used to have a back exit out of his office. So when the creditors would come in the front door, his secretary would let him know and he'd go out the back door and they would shoot pool down in the pool hall until the creditor got tired and left. Well, he said it wasn't until Dime Detective came along that suddenly we were making money. Well, and we all thought, well, great, Dime Detective, it's a great magazine, great authors, great stuff. Really, when it comes down to it is they cut their price in half. They went from a 20 cent magazine to 10 cent magazines. And that's where the difference was. And it was thrilling that decided, well, let's go all 10 cent magazines. So when they started in 31, everything was pretty much 10 cents. And everybody else started going, oh, wait a minute, you know, the shadow was 10 cents and that sells 300,000 copies a, a month or an issue. And, and Argosy sells, you know, 300, 400,000 copies a month and that's 10 cents. And they suddenly started going, oh, this makes financial sense. So it was thrilling and it was this, this, this aha moment that John Locke had in the, in the uh, foreword in the Thrilling Detective Heroes that he said, well, yeah, they were making money at 10 cents. But what that meant though, they weren't paying those rates anymore. That's right. So that meant that they got a lot of rejects from really good writers. They got stories that maybe weren't quite, for some reason or another, didn't fit with popular publications or some others. So they ended up with, uh, with a lot of stories from good writers that were sort of secondary stories or weird stories or stories that didn't quite fit the formula, which was fine. Now, a lot of times these stories were published under house names. But sometimes they were also published under the real author's names. Uh, I think the house names, John and I were talking about this, probably the house names, the writers, I guess the writers could call that shot so maybe they wouldn't devalue their own brands, perhaps. Right, well, you know, in some cases the uh, other publishers weren't going to publish uh, <clears throat> uh, a bellum, uh, you know, because he's just too synonymous with spicy, so, you know, you don't want to devalue your brand and thrilling, uh, if that's possible. Um, right, that's so, a short putt. Yeah. <laughs> well, but people like Roger Torrey, who was also in Spicy, and uh, Cleve F. Adams, one of my favorites, really underrated guy, I think, and uh, detective guy, W.T. Ballard, uh, Robert Leslie Bellum, uh, Robert Sidney Bowen even, uh, wrote under their own names for the thrilling group of detective pulps. Now, thrilling had lots of series characters. We were able to get a few in this book, but I'd like to briefly talk about four of them that John Locke and I decided would not make it. Now, one of them I think is probably, and let's see, are we, yeah, the, that's the first one, isn't it? Very good. 
You are a tech weenie. Oh, I'm so that, proud of you. Oh, that's, that's oh, okay. Oh, oh, all, right. Oh, sorry. <laughs> all right. So, let me ask you a question. This is not interactive necessarily, but there is one detective hero from the Thrilling Pulps that probably appeared mostly in popular detective more than any other detective character in the whole run of Thrilling Pulps. Anybody got an idea who it is? All right, I'll give you a hand. How about if I talk about the writer, tell you the writer, Joe Archibald. Oh, we have a, I heard somebody go, oh yeah. I, <laughs> Popular author. The guy's name was Willie Klump. Yeah, with a name like that, he had to be good. That's right. <laughs> Willie Klump had a detective agency. And more to the point, Willie Klump was one of those guys who, you know, in mainstream literature, if something would start up a lot of times, the popes would sort of co-opt it for their own. In this case, it was Damon Runyon, the writer Damon Runyon of Guys and Dolls fame, started that whole Broadway sort of uh, sassy, kind of, uh, you know, not quite criminal element, but some criminal element, and uh, they're they first person stories, they're using a lot of slang, uh, they're, they're doing uh, really what strikes us kind of as a little precious today. And uh, some people may remember Hugh B. Cave's The Eel that he did for the Spicy Group was very much along those same lines. First person and also present tense. Now, Willie Klump wasn't present tense, but to give you an idea of the Joe Archibald um, style with Willie Klump, <clears throat> things have been going badly for Willie. This is from the story Yeg Stains from Popular Detective October 1938. The last fee he had garnered had gone into a small stack of very prettily engraved certificates that announced to the world that William Klump was the owner of 200 shares of capital stock in the Hold Tight Handcuff Company. The stock salesman thereupon lost no time in hopping a ferry to Madagascar. Consequently, Willie was as devoid of legal tender as a whale is of feathers as he sat in his office late one morning. This is the kind of thing, this was obviously very, very popular. Archibald, you know, was a huge pulp guy, did all kinds of war stories, all kinds of stories, aviation stories. But we decided not to use Willie Clump because it, that stuff just didn't seem to us to wear very well. It was, as Raymond Chandler said about his early career as a poet, Raymond Chandler said, I found it easy to be precious. And that's kind of how we felt about Willie Clump. Now, I will have to say, however, that there's a great story, Willie Clump's story from August 1939, and John says this is too esoteric, you be the judge. There was an August 1939 Willie Clump story in Popular Detective called, Dumb is the Word for Willie. Now that is a knockoff of the 1936 movie that, uh, get, that got a uh, uh, Academy Award nomination for Gladys George called Valiant is the Word for Carrie. And it's also the knockoff of a 1938 Three Stooges comedy called Violent is the Word for Curly. Well, there you go. <laughs> At no extra charge, information you can never use. The other, and I never pronounce this right, will you pronounce this for me, John? Bill Baron Munchausen. 
Tolliver. Bill Baron Munchausen Tolliver. This was by Curtis T. Gardner. Named after that literary character, some of you know there is the Munchausen syndrome, which is a little bit of a different deal, but it's, it's based on the same thing. The Baron Munchausen character was a congenital liar. And it's based on this German nobleman, Hieronymus Carl Friedrich. Friedrich. Friedrich, Friedrich thank you. Put the long eye on it. That's, I'm from Oklahoma. And this is from The Exciting Detective, which was one of the shorter-lived uh, uh, pulps of the thrilling group. And Baron Munchausen was actually an investigator for the Imperial Casualty Insurance Company. And he told all these big, long, windy stories that really had no basis in reality, and then he went out and solved crimes. The third one is a, a guy named William Donald Bray wrote him, uh, and he comes from a thrilling detective, and his name is River Joe. Anybody know River Joe? River Joe is called the clever sleuth of inland streams. River Joe has a floating second-hand store. Now, apparently this is in upstate New York, as nearly as we can tell. And uh, he is kind of a defective detective, almost. Uh, he comes from 1938, and we were talking that's about when they went to the when the thrilling mystery, uh, yeah. uh, th uh, strange detective strange mysteries. Strange detective yeah. mysteries came along. So here's the, all you need to know about River Joe. For River Joe, who walked a little stiffly and with a slight limp on land, had the grace and agility of an otter or seal in the water. This wasn't a miracle. There was a very simple reason for this startling difference. Joe's lower spine had been injured in a fall. On land, the weight of his upper body pressed down on the injured vertebrae, making him a little stiff, but the water bore his weight up evenly. The pressure was relieved from his back, and he had his full strength and suppleness. That is the clever sleuth of Inland Streams, River Joe, by William Donald Bray. And the, the final guy we didn't have only had two stories, but he's one of my favorite of the thrilling detective heroes. His name is Jig Hacksaw, Song Sleuth. <laughs> they can't he, make him up like that no, anymore. <laughs> he was in two uh, popular detectives in the 1940s. He's a jukebox technician who solves crimes. And the way he'll put the jukebox records in, the way he knows if it's gonna be a hit or not, is if it makes his, his feet will start to do a little jig, and that's why it's called Jig Hacksaw. I really fought to have him in the book. <laughs> Didn't happen. So, a few of the more intriguing ones we had in the book I'd, I'd like to talk to you about a little bit, John and I. One of them is Dr. Coffin. Now, Dr. Coffin, uh, we have seen some nods, Dr. Coffin. I did the uh, introduction for the book that, uh, that John Locke did for his uh, Off-Trail Press uh, back, what, 2008, 2009, a collection of those stories. Dr. Coffin, Pearly Poor Sheehan, who is well, pretty well-known writer from the early 30s, late 20s, uh, had these in Thrilling in 1932 and 33, and his, his character was Dr. Mortimer Coffin. Now, Dr. Mortimer Coffin was Hollywood's most famous mortician. In Hollywood, everybody was famous, including the morticians. And he presided over the funeral of a man named Dell Manning, who was called the Man of 500 Faces. Yes, he was half the uh, ability of, uh, <laughs> of Lon Chaney, <laughs> right. yes. The Man of 500 Faces. Well, the thing about it was, 
Dr. Mortimer Coffin was actually Dale Manning. And he changed his face to become Dr. Coffin. And that Pearlie Portishian never really had a timeline on all of this. But he basically, Dale Manning faked his own death. You see, Dale Manning, Lon Chaney. You know, one syllable, two syllable, one syllable, two syllable, right? I think this was inspired by the horror boom of the early 1930s. Frankenstein, Dracula, all of that. First couple of stories, there's like a whole group of freaks, of circus freaks, who helped Dr. Coffin fight crimes, which, of course, would have been at the same time the movie Freaks came out. Of course, the movie Freaks, Todd Browning's movie, which had real circus freaks as the protagonists, did not do well because it was way ahead of its time. Has anybody seen Freaks? It's a great movie. It's a great movie, but it's way ahead of its time. It's freakish. It's very freakish. <laughs> Thank you. And, uh, and so I have a feeling that Freaks, Frankenstein, Dracula, all of these things, the horror boom of the early 1930s, influenced Pearlie Poor Sheehan to write the Dr. Uh, Coffin stories, which were really pretty popular. You got the next one? Um, unfortunately, we're not, we don't have all the images that uh, we had arranged for. We're looking for the 1237, that's October. So this would be hopefully, nope, that's not 12 to 37, that's later on. That's look like one of the Nick Ransom. That's fine, we'll okay. just keep it up there until we okay. get to it. We'll get to it. Dr. Feather was a character by Ray Cummings. Now we know Ray Cummings, science fiction fans know Ray Cummings, detective fans know Ray Cummings. Very prolific man. One of those guys kind of like, um, uh, gosh, John O'Hara maybe, if you look at uh, American Letters, who, started with like his best book and then sort of never had anything come along that was that good. That was Girl with Golden Atom, or a golden, gold, Girl in the Golden Atom, excuse me. Dr. Feather was this little bird-like professor who was in Popular Detective, but there was another guy that was in these stories named Uncle Tubby, who was basically uh, the uh, Oliver Hardy to Dr. Feather's Stan Laurel. And Dr. Uncle Tubby was in not only detective tales for popular publications, but also in thrilling wonder stories. I don't know, and I haven't made an exhaustive search, and you guys may know this better than I, but I think this character was the only character to appear in the science fiction magazines and the detective magazines, the same character. He had science fiction adventures and thrilling wonder. He did detective detection and detective tales. I don't know if there's anybody else that's ever done that before. That was, of course, a Ray Cummings character. The, all you need to know about Uncle Tubby is the final uh, line from The Dead Man Screamed, which is the story we have in the book. Scientific mathematical proof is very convincing to juries. Dear me, yes, it certainly is. There's Uncle T or there's uh, Doctor Feather. Yeah. Tells you all you need to know. Then forget buying the book. It's That's okay. right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> then we want to talk about also Mr. Finney. Do you guys know Mr. Finney? Any costumed hero fans out there? They didn't have a lot of costumed hero fans. They had the Purple Mask, which we don't have in here, which was a real creepy character. Uh, they also had Mr. Finney by Benton Braden. Did seven stories of thrilling detective between thirty-six and thirty-eight. He was a costumed hero, pretty, um, pretty uh, stereotypical. Had a wise-cracking butler, a mystery woman that helped him. 
And whenever he was getting ready to fight crime, his face would set into hard granite-like lines. That's pretty much it. Although he also took the identity of a guy, one of the great pulp names, and there's a lot of great pulp names, but he also took the identity of an underworld character named Jobber Leg uh, sometimes. And uh, that's right, Jobber Leg. Are you going to look that up to make sure I'm right? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is Jobber Leg. It's Leg with two Gs for those of you keeping score at home. And uh, we don't know a lot about Benton Brain. Uh, we do know that he created... That's wrote, the author, Benton yeah. Brain. Yes. Okay. That's correct, yeah. the author, as opposed to Mr. Finney. Right. Right. Yes, we already said that. You need to be paying more attention. <laughs> uh, we do know that he created and wrote another detective character named Willie Brand, who was known as the goober-eating gumshoe, uh, a guy who apparently was addicted to eating peanuts, not unlike Michael Shane later on, and that was in uh, Thrilling in the early 1940s. Just jump in here whenever you want to, John. We don't know much about Milton Lowe either, but we do know that he wrote two novelette-length stories about Bogo, Bogo, Baghdad Hobo Detective. Now, Baghdad Hobo Detective was uh, in Popular Detective in the late 1930s, and the reason we have him in the book is because John Locke, my co-editor, is just nuts for hobos. If you know his work uh, from Off-Trail Press, if he's got a hobo story, it's going to find its way between the covers of an Off-Trail Press book. And it was, there was a uh, hobo stories. Uh... Yes, an entire hobo stories collection. And actually, you know, that's good hobo. I mean, if you like that, as a friend of mine used to say, if, that's, if you like that sort of thing, it's the sort of thing you'd like. But... One of the things about Baghdad Hobo Detective that, that I really like a lot is that it, it, even within the stereotypes, like we were talking about, John, right. it is a stereotypical thing, but it also sheds a light on the Depression era and what it was like to ride the rails and what it was like for these people. And you were talking about how they would use stereotypes to show things. Well, you know, in, in all popular culture, you have stereotypes. You know, the TV shows, you have certain stereotypes for characters so that you can immediately generate, you know, some sort of, of uh, agreement with uh, who that person really is before they even open their mouth, almost. Um, but it's the same thing here in this particular story um, because the hobo detective is always riding the, the rails. And um, this is a Renaissance man who uh, obviously doesn't uh, brush his teeth. Uh, and, uh, but for some reason, he's able to solve crime. Um, and this one particular crime that's in the book uh, is fat cat bankers. Now, you know, tell me a fat cat banker that anybody reading a, a uh, pulp story in the middle of the Depression wouldn't instantly hate. Mm -hmm. So when the when the the, uh, the the bankers start to get knocked off, there was joy to be had. That's right. <laughs> Good time was had by all. We don't know much about Milton Lowe, who wrote him either. Um, wrote Baghdad Hobo Detective. He we think he may have died in the war, uh, because after the early 1940s, uh, he doesn't show up in the pulps anywhere anymore, as far as we know. I want to talk about now one of my favorite characters, and that's Dr. Zing. Do we have any Dr. Zing fans in the audience? Do you guys know Dr. Zing? Really worth looking up. 
Dr. Zing, or Dr. Zing, how would you say that? C. Lin, I guess? Yeah. Yeah, was a popular, was a wartime character, popular detective. And there were several of the Dr. Zing stories. He was supposedly a crime fighter named Dr. Zing, but he was actually uh, a wasp uh, who had been born to missionary parents in China who was pretending to be Chinese. And he had a real Chinese uh, uh, helper. So I guess in other words, he looked like Warner Olin doing uh, yes. Charlie Chan. He didn't look, really look Chinese, but no, that's okay. more like Roland Winters doing Charlie <laughs> Chan, actually, yeah. Uh, but he did have a real Chinese um, servant. Mongolian. Lai Hu Chow, yes. Okay. Who had lost a leg to the Japanese which turned out to be a good thing, not necessarily for Lai Hu Chow, but for Dr. Zing, because he had a fake leg that he could put stuff in. So one of the- It's like Batman, always seems to be yeah. able to pull out just the right yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah, only this time he was pulling it out of his leg. <laughs> well, better than that, uh, right. another yeah, region. Exactly. And so he pulled out, at one point, he had a radio transmitter in his fake leg, and that, that proved to be very helpful in one of their adventures. He also um, would put weapons in his leg, and uh, he just could put pretty much, I guess, you know, he could put anything in his leg he wanted to. Dr. Zhang invented all of these false legs, and so he would sit there and when they're about ready to, to leave to fight crime, he would uh, pretty much tell his, his Mongolian assistant, uh, you know, a, uh, I'm trying to remember. Well, get that said. leg on. Yeah. <laughs> get that stuff in that leg. Yeah, he, yeah, he would. And I, we, Will Murray uh, was very helpful in our study of, uh, of uh, Dr. Zing because what happened, E. Hoffman Price, and I'm quoting you, Will, please tell me if we're wrong, but E. Hoffman Price did the first Dr. Zing story and uh, in November 41. It was a standalone, allegedly. It's going to be a, Will told us it was written as a one-shot. And then along comes the Office of War Information, who is encouraging uh, people who are creating popular culture to um, create things that, uh, that made our Chinese allies look good. And one of those things would be Dr. Zing. And so Ballard and Bellum, W.T. Ballard and Robert Leslie Bellum, writing together as Walt Bruce, wrote a series of Dr. Zing stories during World War II for Popular Detective. Now, at this time, Bellum and Ballard had adjoining offices in a Pasadena, California office building. And they would work separately on their stuff, but they also worked together, and as I recall it, one of them, uh, Ballard was, Bellum was good at storytelling, but he wasn't good at long form. Ballard was good at long form, so one of them, I think Bellum, would go to the dictaphone and tell a story, and then Ballard would come and flesh it all out. They did that not only with Dr. Singh, but also with Jim Anthony's Super Detective. Uh, those, those Super Detective books in, in that particular time period were also written by Ballard and Bellum. One of the questions which I have, which will never be answered, I'm sure, is, whether or not Robert Leslie Bellum was jealous of W.T. Ballard, his collaborator.
Now, the reason I bring this up is because W.C. Ballard, you know, was all over popular publications, which was right up. Well, you, you've said that popular wasn't Street and Smith. No. And thrilling wasn't popular. No. But W.C. Ballard wrote the Bill Lennox books, which some are stories which some of you know for the Hollywood detective for Black Mask. Bellum's Hollywood detective was in a, a definitely second string pulp, which was, uh, uh, although he was paid well for it, but he was in, uh, they were in the, the Spicy Detectives and the Speed Detectives and, and uh, the Dan Turner Hollywood Detectives for a time, and a couple of times in Private Detective. But it was a much, you know, on the echelon of pulps, it was pretty low down. And I know from uh, Tom Roberts' letter he showed me some correspondence from Bellum, Bellum was trying hard to break into popular publications. Specifically, he was trying hard to break into the... Um, Dime the, or Black Mask. Yeah. Well, no, he was trying to break into Dime Mystery or Terror, you know, one okay. of the Terror Tales. And uh, he, he had actually said, I'm going to try and write these stories, these weird menace stories. I didn't call them that, but that's what they were. And I'm going to try and pitch them to Dime Mystery or Terror Tales, pitch them to Harry Steger, uh, popular publications. Uh, and if they don't sell, I'll sell them to Spicy Mystery. They didn't sell to Popular, and he sold them to Spicy Mystery. So my question would be, you know, was there any jealousy between Robert Leslie Bellum and W.T. Ballard, his, the guy that he worked with? I'd really like to know that. I'd really like to know if he resented the fact that, that Ballard could sell to, to popular publications pretty much at will, and he couldn't. He could never crack that market. He always had the same as secondary markets. Do you have the time? We don't want to run over. I don't know if Will came in because he wanted to hear it or if it's about time for him to be on. 9.20. Okay, all right, what do we go, 9.20? Is that right, yeah. 9.20? Thank you, okay, thank you. So, moving right along here. Um, the other character that's, that was in the popular bulbs from Bellum was a guy named Nick Ransom. Now, Nick Ransom was He's been described as a Dan Turner Hollywood detective clone. He was a former stuntman who became a private detective and worked kind of freelance for the studios, like Bella, like a Dan Turner. Dan Turner was not uh, was not a, a stuntman; he was just a detective. But he actually started out about six months after Dan Turner Hollywood Detective started out. Dan Turner, of course, was in the first issue in the issue of Spicy in in '34. And uh, Nick Ransom was in 10 Detective Aces for Ace in December of 34. Now, he later on, he sort of bounced around. He was in Detective Dime novels. He was in Red Star Detective. He was in Double Detective throughout the late 30s, early 40s. And then he doesn't show up again until 1948. And I, that's another question I have. We were talking about that. Why, why that gap? Why did you and the only thing that when you start talking about 41 to 48, you can immediately think army service or something along that line. But I don't know. I don't know Bellum as well as you do. Well, he had a good, he had a good formula. Uh, Dan Turner, the Dan Turner movie, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, did the Dan Turner movie Blackmail from Republic come out in 48, 49, somewhere in the late 40s, certainly, with William Marshall as Dan Turner. And, you know, maybe there was that. I know, for instance, when... Some of you have read the essay about Dan Turner that S.J. Perelman wrote called Somewhere a Roscoe, which appeared in, what was that, New Yorker? Was that New Yorker, I believe? I can't remember. 
and then he was going to just write a novel just off of that. So anything that perhaps could expand his markets. And in 1948, the popes were not in great shape. Maybe he had a backlog of stories. I have no idea why he revived the character, or why he started the similar character, Nick Ransom, in the first place, except he found a formula that he could do, and he did a good job of it. And if you have not read any Nick Ransom or read uh, any uh, Dan Turner, Dan Turner uh, you definitely have to, to find a, some of that stuff to read. Let me uh, tell you a quick a personal story. Five minutes. It won't, it'll be a short personal story. When I was in graduate school, I took a, a course in detective fiction, and the first uh, uh, time the professor got up, he said, uh, well, we want to start talking about hard-boiled fiction now and how it was begun by Dashiell Hammett. And I raised my hand, trying not to be the kind of person we all sometimes think we are when we know about pulps. And I said, well, actually, that was begun by Carol John Daly, and Race Williams' character was really the first hard-boiled detective. Well, that he wasn't having any of that. But the truth was, uh, he really was. He was, uh, he was not as good a writer. I don't think anybody would say Carol John Daly was a Dashiell Hammett or a Raymond Chandler or even a John K. Butler. But he had a style. And as a matter of fact, when uh, Mike Hammer came along in the 50s, or in the late 40s, uh, with Mickey Spillane and just set every set the whole hard-boiled thing on its ear. He wrote Carol John Daly a letter and said that Race Williams was the only character that ever inspired Mike Hammer. So we go back to the 20s for Race Williams, but toward the very end of his life, he shows up in Popular Detective. There's several stories. I'm sorry, in Thrilling Detective. He does several stories for Thrilling Detective. And uh, after that, I mean, it's like that sort of slow, that, that you know, slow thing. Every, every career is a bell-shaped curve, isn't it? And so he's on the bell-shaped curve at the bottom. Yeah, I think ours is getting to that bottom. Yeah, too, we're so. about there, too. <laughs> uh, and so it's after Thrilling, he was only in a couple of other books. He was in Smashing Det four stories in Smashing Detective stories. Boy, that was a real come which down. Was a Clayton, Columbia. Which was a Clayton, uh, Columbia, not Clayton, Columbia, yeah. And I always heard that he went to comics after the Popes. Is that correct, that Carol John Daly wrote for the comics? That's the rumor. That's the one I wanted to ask. Does anybody know what comics he wrote for? Yeah. I mean, could he have been writing for Ned Pines, for the Thrilling Group? Um, you know, we just don't know. But he allegedly, you know, went down, 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 and finally ended up writing for comics, unlike some of the other people who managed to make the jump to paperbacks. He never really made the jump to paperbacks, which even at that time that these Race Williams stories were appearing in 1947, uh, were supplanting the polls. And uh, yeah, yeah, you, you, you got to think that these these authors were getting to the point where they were making good money prior to the uh, stock market crash, and then suddenly was getting paid, you know, a cent a word. And maybe by the time that he was writing for Columbia, because they were pretty much a half a cent a word or yeah. even a quarter cent a word yeah. house, that talking about pure desperation. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one guy that wasn't desperate, the final guy we're going to talk about tonight is Stuart Sterling, whose real name was Prentice Winchell. 
Stuart Sterling, uh, I read, uh, Ed, I would recommend Ed Hulse's book on the Popes, uh, The Blood and Thunder Guide to Popes. I just recently read it. And he mentioned that uh, Prentice Winchell, Stuart Sterling, was brought in by Popular to sort of spice up the Phantom Detectives toward the very end of the run in 52 and 53. Thrilling. Uh, what did I say? I thought you said Popular. Yeah, the, I'm sorry, what did I Phantom Detectives. Phantom Detectives, that's right, I'm sorry. Phantom Detectives, thank you, John. Uh, to spice up the Phantom Detectives, a little bit of vulgarity, maybe a little bit of sex and everything. But the thing about it was, he was already there. He created the last great detective heroes for thrilling for the thrilling group. Um, and keep in mind, Stuart Sterling was one of those guys who had a great pedigree. He'd been in Black Mask with those special squad stories, which are terrific stories, hold up very well today. He did Fire Marshal Ben Pedley for Black Mask and also one for Dime Detective, I think. And later on, did uh, used him as a as a series character. And now, was he, that anything like Fire Marshal Bill? Uh, no, it was not. No <laughs> Fire Marshal Bill. No, I don't think so. He had a racetrack cop. He had three characters at the very end of the thrilling run: the racetrack cop Dean Madden, or Op Dean Madden, Keen Madden, hotel detective Gil Vine, and some of you may remember that Stuart Sterling helped a real hotel detective do a book called "I Was a House Detective." And uh, I'm sure this helped him do that. And he came at the very end of Thrilling's run, but he kept on, and he got into paperbacks and hardcovers, and he did very well for himself, even though he was there at the very end of the Thrilling run. John, I think that's about all we've got, isn't it? Yep, I think uh, our time is up. All right, thank you all very much. We appreciate it. You've been listening to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet when your next adventure was just a dime away. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps.